Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national reporter for the Republic. In today's episode, we're talking about the explosive reporting on Maricopa County Assessor Paul Peterson. Paul Peterson was arrested and indicted in an adoption fraud scheme on October 8th. His first Arizona court appearance was Tuesday, November 5th. Ron, give us the background on this evolving scandal. Peterson was charged with running a human smuggling scheme that brought pregnant women from the Marshall Islands to the U.S. to give birth and then paid them to place their children for adoption. He's been indicted in three states, Arizona, Utah, and Arkansas, on state and federal charges. That's already big news, but on top of it, Peterson is an elected official. He's held public office in Maricopa County since 2013 and has worked in local government for more than 10 years. All of this has has exposed his poor stewardship of his office and raised questions about holes in the Medicaid system, adoption system, justice system, and so much more in Maricopa County and all over Arizona. Here to talk about that with us is reporter Jessica Baim. She covers Phoenix and Maricopa County and investigative reporter Robert Anglin. Hey, guys. Hello. So who is Paul Peterson? So you may know him as an elected official who's worked as the Maricopa County Assessor, if you pay attention to county politics. Uh, He also has been running an adoption law office out of Mesa for nearly 20 years. So he started at the assessor's office as both a lobbyist and a PIO uh, back in 2006. So he's worked for the county for a long time. In 2013, he became the assessor. He is 44 years old. Um, He is a member of the LDS Church and was seen by many that we've talked to in the community as a family man and an important member of the community. He got his start in the adoption business in the Marshall Islands. He was on an LDS mission in 1998, and that's where he learned the language and became aware of the potential for adoption, which at the time was legal. That changed in 2003 when the Marshall Islands and the United States revamped their compact. That's like, in essence, it's a treaty. It makes it illegal to transport Marshallese women to the U.S. for the purposes of giving birth and giving up their children for adoption. Okay, so that's where the story here really kind of begins. Tell us more about what the charges are that that he faces. So there's different sets of charges in three states, each related to the adoption practice. All three jurisdictions took a different approach to the same issue of human smuggling. In Arizona, he's indicted on 32 counts of Medicaid fraud. That's because he flew women here, enrolled them in the Medicaid system, to, to cover their health care, to cover the cost of the birth. That means Arizona taxpayers were on the hook for paying for the birth of the women who then placed their children up for adoption. In Utah, he's essentially charged with human smuggling. That's the, that's the most straight-across charge. Um, and then in Arkansas, he's facing federal charges. Uh, there's a litany of federal wire fraud charges, conspiracy charges, all, again, related to bringing women to Arkansas for the purposes of placing their children up for adoption for cash. Okay, so very serious uh, allegations, serious charges. 
Jessica, can you break down exactly what Paul Peterson was doing? Sure. So here's how it worked, according to the attorney general's office. Uh, He would work with people in the Marshall Islands to find pregnant women there, arrange for them to travel to the United States, uh, live in houses that he owned here in Mesa, in Utah, and in Arkansas, place them on the state's Medicaid system uh, fraudulently. They were not, they did not qualify for Medicaid, but somehow they have received it. Uh, Once they delivered their babies, um, he would have them place them for adoption and charge those families that were adopting the baby anywhere from $25,000 to $40,000 per adoption. Yeah, he was really selling children. One of the adoptive parents called it a baby mill. He paid them around ten grand, but appeared to be taking money off the top for their living expenses. The women lived in big houses together, were sleeping on mattresses on the floor. They were dilapidated um, structures, a fourplex in Mesa. He was running this in broad daylight. He wasn't making a secret of it. So give us a sense, Jessica, of how many people were affected by all of this. So you really have to look at that in terms of who you're considering a victim. And most people have kind of divided these victims into three groups. You have the birth mothers, the women from the Marshall Islands, who, you know, people believe were exploited and maybe not told the entire truth about how this adoption was going to work. Uh, You have the adoptive parents whose adoptions, you know, may be at risk at this point because they were not uh, according to prosecutors, followed following the letter of the law. And then at the end of the day, the most vulnerable among us, we have the children at the center of this very complex scheme. Adoption is a very expensive prospect for families. And uh, if y- you look at his prices, I personally was struck at how um, cheap for lack of a better word, that his prices were. I've, I'm familiar with families who've paid upwards of 100 to $200,000 uh, for a child. And these are people who really desperately want children and will really kind of pay whatever it takes to get them. I wouldn't necessarily say they were dirt cheap, but they are pretty much in line with what a lot of the people that I, other adoption attorneys I've talked to, 40000 50000 is not an unreasonable amount. You're correct. Um, what I will say is he was able to move a lot quicker than most adoption attorneys. He could get you a match in three to six months. He bragged about that in text messages that I've seen. That is unusual. I mean, I've talked to many people who wait three to six years. And so I think for a lot of people, they saw that. They were very eager to have a successful adoption. And maybe they relaxed their spidey senses, as I like to call them, and didn't ask those tough questions that they should have been asking when they committed to the adoption. So these adoptive parents, did they understand what was happening? In all of the cases that I've looked into, no. Uh, They really, I mean, you hire an adoption attorney and you believe that they are carrying this out according to the law. Um, This is an extremely complex and also an extremely um, small segment of the adoption world. Not many people know about this international treaty we have with the Marshall Islands. And I think most people relied on him to, to... tell them the truth about how this was supposed to work. 
in addition to that, he marketed these as domestic adoptions as opposed to international adoptions, which involve a whole different set of laws and practices. When you, when you adopt internationally, countries involved are, are part of a coalition of countries that have mandates about how that works. And that these weren't marketed that way. So even though you're bringing women to give birth from a, ostensibly a foreign country, they weren't considered international adoptions by anyone involved. So why women from the Marshall Islands? Why was this such a, um, I guess from his vantage point, such a lucrative business model? The reason that Marshallese women are so susceptible to exploitation in this way is because it's very easy for for people from the Marshall Islands to travel to the United States. The treaty we have with the Marshall Islands allows them to travel here without a visa, to work here without you know, the typical type of documentation and permissions that we require from international citizens. So it's very easy for them to get here, which means that it's very easy for them to travel here pregnant and therefore um, have their child. And that child will then be a U.S. citizen, which, as Robert mentioned, makes the adoption process a lot easier than going through the international process, which has so many more rules and regulations. So how long was Peterson's adoption business going on? Well, we know that he has been an adoption agent since at least 1998. Uh, He started his private sector law firm, which he's been running out of the city of Mesa uh, in 2005. And as far as we know, it's been running since then. Okay. So more than a decade ago, did anybody know about this? Yeah, lots of people did. In 2006, here in Maricopa County Superior Court, an adoption commissioner actually denied an adoption and said that Paul Peterson was breaking an international compact for the adoption he was involved with. He censured Peterson pretty good, and others knew about it as well. Okay, so we know of at least one case where uh, a court official, a judge, basically determined, hey, you're breaking the law, an international one at that. Did he act on that concern? How did this go under the radar for so long? That is the question. I mean, as we're talking to people, I mean, Robert and I haven't been super active in the adoption world prior to about a month ago. But as we're talking to people now, everyone who was active in this community was well aware of what was going on. The judge that we just talked about knew about it. We have reason to believe that many others in the judicial world did and had raised concerns. But It appears not to the correct people because this has been happening since then until a month ago. He even had it on his website. Not only that, other adoption agencies were involved in this. Our investigation has found at least three other adoption agencies, one in Colorado, two here, were also involved in this Marshallese adoption practice. They were real upfront about it. What about the element of the Medicaid fraud? I mean, you hear a lot of lawmakers and public officials talk a lot about undocumented immigrants and how they're illegally trying to get on the rolls. And here we have this scam going on and you have a member of, well-respected member of the Latter-day Saints running this adoption uh, business and he's fraudulently 
billing the Arizona taxpayers? How did no one say anything about this? That's something that's been raised a lot. We cannot figure out how no one in the Medicaid office could have caught this at some point because not only is it strange for a bunch of Marshallese women who are pregnant to be coming in and trying to register for Medicaid, but there's actually laws in place that not just pregnant women, but no Marshallese people can qualify for Medicaid unless they have been a resident of the United States for five years. And in many of these cases that we're seeing, these women were living here for months, maybe two to three months before they were giving birth through the Medicaid system. And we have documents showing that. We have documents where women, Marshallese women actually wrote, they came here in March and in May they were on Medicaid. It raises, I think, a lot of questions, too, about what other people might be on the system that who don't qualify. But nonetheless, how is it possible that nobody put a stop to this? There are a lot of questions about regulations, both in terms of licensing of adoption agencies and social workers in Arizona. Both were involved in adoptions. Both are supposed to be licensed by regulatory agencies. And those agencies could have put a stop to Marshallese adoptions at any time, but the fact is nobody was looking. There's no examination of social workers unless somebody complains. There's no meaningful oversight conducted by federal or state authorities on that same issue. There's also no oversight of the International Compact. This is actually a well-known problem to the people in the adoption world. So let's talk just a bit more about his job as we know him as the county assessor. Um, what exactly is the assessor? That's a good question. And I think more taxpayers and voters should ask that question before uh, controversies pop up. But it is an extremely important but also very administrative role. Their job is basically to determine all of our property values, which is important because that is how we determine how much we owe in property taxes every year. Um, So if you own property, what he does, what he was supposed to be doing for us as taxpayers is very important. The office determines how much city, county, and state derives its revenue. That's where we get our money, property taxes, valuations. What has been interesting that we have discovered since his arrest is that it looks like he wasn't spending much time in the office even before he was in custody. I was able to uh, get his parking records and it showed that he had only been into work about 53 times this year. Um, And on most of those days, he was only there you know, about four hours per day. Um, So there's been a lot of talk in political circles since this all came out as to why this is a position that we elect and if maybe it would be better served as an appointed administrative role. And to be clear, how much does that position pay? $77,000 a year, and I'm told they have some great pension benefits. So he's been arrested. He was held out of state. He's been released from... Uh, jail, does he still hold public office? He was suspended. The Maricopa County Board of Supervisors doesn't have the power to permanently remove him from office because he's elected. But it has raised the question of what he's been doing at work. And their audit shows that he might not have been doing very much. What do you two think that this story says about our justice system and our 
child welfare system, our adoption system here in Maricopa County and in Arizona. It shows that there's a lot of gaping holes in all of those systems. The fact that this was able to go on for so long in broad daylight, as we've mentioned, really brings a lot of questions about the private adoption industry and who's paying attention and more importantly, who's not. You can blame the feds, you can blame the state, you can blame agencies um, everywhere from the Department of Child Services to the licensing bureaus, the medical boards, everybody involved. There were doctors involved in these. There were social workers involved. There were adoption agencies. So we've, again, tied Peterson to multiple adoption agencies in multiple states, and yet this thing was still going on, as Jessica likes to say, in broad daylight. All right, let's dive into some afterthoughts, breaking down how this scandal might reflect larger truths or trends about Arizona politics. I'm going to ask a question. I can guess the answer. Do we think there's anything that's going to be done about this at the legislature or from an administrative standpoint uh, anytime soon? No. Uh, I think that if maybe this was happening during the session, maybe they'd give it a little more thought. But Frankly, there's been a few people who've said that they want to introduce bills, and Ducey's mentioned maybe we should have some way to remove officials in these very rare, probably never going to happen again scenarios. I don't see them doing much. Uh, I would hope more than looking at removing him from office, they start taking a harder look at private adoptions, and maybe there's some room for legislative movement there. But again, I'm not holding my breath. The state isn't exactly known for self-reflection and regulation. Okay, so you talk about that from the, you know, removal of a public office vantage point. What about, you know, what what can they do from an administrative standpoint on on the adoptions? And what can the state bar do, if anything? On the on the part about the bar, if he's convicted of all these crimes, he will almost certainly lose his license to practice law. But, you know, this again brings up the point that you know, he may lose his license now after he's convicted, but it does show that there is room for some amount of either private or government regulation or oversight into this uh, practice because right now the only, uh, you know, way that we have to discipline is usually after the conviction. You know, I, I have to think of this story in parallel with another story the Republic ran recently citing the the reduced size of state government and this has really been sort of a point of pride for the governor and many in the legislature and it just seems to me that the smaller that we get, the more the possibility of these kinds of cracks uh, widening and, and seeing people and their children falling through them. You have to wonder too about the judicial system. I mean, these judges, these paralegals, these stenographers, these people knew what was going on. And how was it that there was no one there to stop them? I will say Peterson did expand his business into multiple states later in his career. And so some people have argued that maybe that helped uh, disguise what was going on in a way because they were seeing multiple different judges, multiple different jurisdictions. It wasn't necessarily all the same judge giving a rubber stamp. You know, he was also aided by the fact that court, these adoption processes are private. They're, they're in sealed. The court records are sealed. And most officials are, are good at dealing with a 
with one issue. They're good with dealing an issue that's in front of them. And a judge would say, hey, look, particularly the judge in 2006, I took action. I stopped Peterson from doing this. But Peterson just went on to the next case. All right. Well, that's it for today, Gaggle listeners. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. We know that you guys have been writing reviews. Please keep them coming, even if they're critical. We want to hear you all. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Jessica, where can people find you? I'm at jbame underscore news, and bame is B-O-E-H-M. And what about you, Robert? I'm at Robert Anglin, and that's A-N-G-L-E-N. Thank you. Today's episode was edited and produced by Kayla White with oversight from Katie O'Connell. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.